This is a Charles Russell Speechley's podcast. Welcome to our last property patter of 2020, asking what the property world, especially the litigators within it, might like for Christmas in terms of changes to the law. We all know there are some legal rules which could work better or perhaps should be ditched altogether. My name's Emma Humphreys and I've asked Joanne Wicks QC of Wilberforce Chambers and Natalie Duker of our real estate disputes team to join us today to share their thoughts on some legislation which would ideally be revisited. So Joe, welcome. Let's start with section two of the Law of Property Miscellaneous Provisions Act 1989. Doesn't quite roll off the tongue. Um, and the name of the act obviously tells us absolutely nothing. What does this section two do and uh, why does it do it? So it's the statute provision that says that contracts for the sale of land or for interest in land have to be made in a formal way. So you can only make a contract for the sale of land if it's in writing and all the terms that should be agreed are in a single document or where you exchange contracts, you have two identical documents which are exchanged and those documents are signed. And, and really, it's a provision that is designed to make sure that everybody knows that land contracts are to be taken seriously. They're often the biggest asset that ordinary people will transact most valuable asset. So it gives everybody a chance to pause and reflect, do I really want to do this? Do I know what I'm getting myself into? Do I need to go off and see a solicitor about this, for example? And it's part of a long history of requiring certain formalities in relation to land contracts. It goes right back to the sort of 1600s. So we've had acts like this in place for a long time. But you think it's right for some amendment, though. Why is that? Well, I don't think it was properly thought through at the time that it was brought in and there are various problems which still all these years later so it's more than 30 years old which still haven't been resolved and the the main area uh, that's problematic is how the section interrelates with other legal principles we have which enable people to uh, make agreements or arrangements without having to write them down And the Act, the section, deals with one set of rules, namely trusts, and says specifically nothing in the section impacts on constructive and resulting trusts. Okay, that's fine. But we have another big area of law, proprietary estoppel. And the section doesn't say anything explicit about how we deal with that. And the courts are still wrestling with that. Can you informally have a proprietary estoppel which is pretty similar in many ways to a contract or does the fact that you're supposed to make contracts in writing stop you having stop you being able to rely on proprietary estoppel so that's one one big area of um, complexity that I just don't think was properly thought through there are there are other things I mean the courts have been working these through in the in the years since the act was passed uh, but there are issues around making side agreements or varying existing contracts and how that all plays out in Section 2. And there are certain um, interests which it's still not very clear how they should be addressed under Section 2, particularly rights of first refusal, so rights of preemption don't sit very well with the section. 
Um, having said that, I do think it's a question about amending and not throwing it out altogether. I do think it's a good idea that we have particular rules about land contracts because they're important. And I think the essential philosophy is the right one. So I wouldn't get it rid of it altogether. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, Natalie, do you agree with that? I mean, what sort of practical consequences do we see from Section 2? I mean, does, does it work, do you think? Well, interestingly, the application of Section 2 has actually come to the fore again post-COVID. So when the first lockdown um, was put in place, particularly parties to leases, landlords and tenants were scrambling to vary the terms of their leases. And I think at that point, the need for some formality and having a consistency of approach is very important. What Section 2 does is it protects parties from inadvertently contracting to more than they envisaged. And having the formality and the structure in place means that in times of great stress, in times of parties are looking to vary the terms of their leases like they were at the beginning of the COVID um, lockdowns, the negotiations that they are uh, partaking in aren't going to bind the parties before they are really ready to commit fully to what is being agreed. So I think it's very important to have the formality for land contracts and it's very helpful to have everything all in one place. But having said that, of course, there does seem to be quite a bit of litigation over Section 2, which does suggest that perhaps it's not working too well. Joanne, do you see a lot of cases crossing your chambers or your home office desk at the moment? I definitely do get Section 2 issues which crop up from time to time. And if you look at the uh, law reports, you can see that it is litigated quite frequently. There are quite a lot of cases that come through. There are some cases, actually, that I think people might find a little bit surprising. The one that particularly strikes me was a decision last year in Manchester of Judge Pearce. I'm never quite sure how to pronounce the name, but it's I think it's Neocleus and Reese. And it was a case where it was about a compromise agreement, which did involve a transfer of land. So Section 2 was was engaged. And one solicitor sent an email setting out the terms of the agreement. And the other solicitor, the other party, replied saying, effectively, we agree. And the question which was litigated was whether the automatically generated email footer at the bottom of the first solicitor's email was a signature for the purposes of Section 2. And the judge said, um, yes, it was. Um, That perhaps is not so surprising when you think about all of the different ways in which people might sign a document. But what I think is particularly interesting is what you had was as a reply to an email. So you didn't have a single document in the traditional sense with containing all the terms. You had one email saying, here are the terms, and another email responding saying, I agree. And I guess you could call an email chain an entire document, but it's it seems like to me it's stretching it a bit. Um, it doesn't look like an exchange of contracts to me. But yeah, so I think there's I think there's I think there's more to give in section two. I'm sure we'll continue to see problems arising and disputes being litigated. And as you say, I mean, that case is really interesting because it just probably didn't feel to the parties at the time, like, they, you know, coming back to your uh, our opening point here, which was, you know, Section 2 is designed to make things feel quite real and serious. It, you know, that email exchange just, it wouldn't have felt like that, would it really, I think? 
No, exactly. What, why, why does the section say you need to add a signature? It's mm. because we know that that feels formal, doesn't it? It does. Somebody says, read this document before you sign it. But if it's actually just sending an email and your computer system automatically generates what looks like a signature or, or, or puts your name on the bottom of it, you, ha- you haven't had that process at all, have you? No, I agree. And actually, I had a really interesting case once about Section 2, talking of signatures, where um, we were acting for a a lady in her 90s who had signed a document transferring her house to this gentleman, and he was therefore claiming to be the owner of it. And we were acting on her behalf to say that she didn't know what she had been signing and there were all sorts of various arguments we might have raised you know coming back to your point of how does section two interact with all these various other arguments you might have in that scenario the most wonderful thing about that case was he had managed to get my client to sign it he hadn't signed it himself and so I could go for summary judgment on the basis that it did not comply with section two because he hadn't signed it and my favorite moment and it's one of my favorite moments ever in a courtroom was where he suggested to the district judge he might sign it there and then (laughs) And she was unimpressed with that suggestion. (laughs) So it just shows, doesn't it, you know, coming back to our point, section two, it it may need some improvement, but it can have some some benefits as well. It certainly, you know, it saved my client, you know, a lot of money and other legal arguments that would have been harder to overcome, I think. So moving on, there's a bit of legislation which has certainly created some interesting litigation, and that is Section 18 of the Landlord and Tenant Act 1927. Natalie, do you want to tell us what is Section 18 all about? Well, Section 18 has the perceived effect of limiting the amount of damages which a landlord can recover for breach of a tenant's repairing obligation. It has two limbs. The first limb provides that either during the term or at the end of the term, a landlord cannot recover damages which exceed the amount by which the value of the landlord's reversion in the premises is diminished arising from the tenant's breach of covenant. And with respect to the first limb, the landlord's intentions are not relevant. The second limb applies to terminal dilapidations and provides that no damages shall be recoverable for a breach of covenant in relation to repair if it is shown that the landlord has the intention to pull down or to redevelop the property in such a way that would render the works valueless. And how is it supposed to work in practice? What Section 18.1 does, the first limb, is it requires the parties to ask a hypothetical question. You're supposed to assume two sales of the landlord's reversionary interest are taking place at the same time on the same day at the end of the term. One of those sales is of the property in repair, and the other sale is of the same property affected by such disrepair in terms of the breaches of the repair covenants as exist. The difference in the sale price which is achievable is the diminution in value for which the tenant is responsible. If the cost of the repairs exceeds the diminution figure, the damages are limited by reference to that figure. However, if in practice the landlord's intention is to redevelop the property, to pull it down, or the landlord might have an incoming tenant who's going to carry out substantial works to the property to make it fit for their own purposes. And the bulk of those works would in fact render the works required under the dilapidation schedule valueless, then no damages will be recoverable. 
And the courts now tend to focus on the cost of the work only being recoverable, where it would be reasonable for a landlord to carry out the works. And why did Parliament feel it needed to introduce those types of ceilings on dilapidations claims? I mean, it's quite an unusual provision, really, isn't it? We don't see it very often with anything else. Yeah, it's, it is unusual. I mean, this was introduced back in the 1920s, and there had been a series of cases decided by the courts which had rather set a precedent that the measure of damages for a breach of a tenant's repairing covenant at the end of the term was the cost of repairs. And, and that applied whether or not the landlord actually intended to do the works. So this provision was obviously brought about by the need to balance that as against being able to factor in what the landlord's intention might be in any given case. Yeah, I can see that. So basically the case had taken a bit of a wrong turn and Parliament decided to steer it back in a, a different direction. But what are the problems with how Section 18 works then? I think the problem with Section 18 is that its application is widely misunderstood. So far too often, the parties are focused on the cost of the repairs, even where the landlord has no intention of doing the works at all. They assume that a costed terminal schedule of dilapidations is sufficient to support a claim to be entitled to damages at the end of the term of the new lease. And furthermore, that all the items identified in the schedule of dilapidations constitute repairs within the ambit of Section 18, as opposed to, for example, redecoration, which will then have a material effect on the value. But the schedule of dilapidations itself, absent the diminution in value calculations I've described, is only part of the story. And the section is far more nuanced than that. Yeah, I agree. Um, I mean, is that your experience as well, Joe? Yeah, that's right. I think I think it is misunderstood. Although there is a thriving dilapidations industry, and obviously there are lots of people out there who who are used to applying Section 18 um, very regularly in their work. I, I guess my feeling is that it's just become obsolete because, as you said earlier, Emma, it was designed to deal with a particular wrong turn in the law. And if we got rid of Section 18 now, we would be able to call on the modern law in relation to the assessment of damages, which is flexible, which looks at what's reasonable, which decides the date based on best capturing what the landlord has really lost. I mean, for example, under Section 18, we're all looking at the diminution in value uh, on the last day of the term or as the, as the lease comes to an end. But that's not always going to best capture the landlord's loss. I mean, what, what if the landlord intends to sell two or three months after the end of that lease and it can't get the same value in the market because of the disrepair? Wouldn't it be more logical to take the assessment of the diminution in value as at that date on which it would propose to sell, for example? So it's a bit of a straitjacket, it seems to me, Section 18. It's a sort of one size fits all. We, we don't need it. We've, we've, we've got a more mature law now, which could prove more just, really. Yeah, and I suppose that just shows how, you know, case law does evolve. I mean, Natalie, what do you think? Should we throw it out altogether? I agree with Joe. I mean, I, I think actually this is a candidate um, Room 101, because the, the law, particularly the law on damages, has sufficiently progressed so as to make this section effectively unnecessary. You know, in particular, at the moment, certain of its principles are now enshrined in the pre-action protocol for dilapidations and in the RICS guidance. And I do, therefore, 
yes, I, I do think this is a candidate for Room 101. Like it. Okay, well, I might have to petition for that in the new year. It's definitely a fair point. And one other point that occurred to me when I was speaking on Section 18 a little while ago and we got into a discussion in the in the room about one unintended consequence of Section 18 is that it probably prevents landlords and tenants from agreeing a fixed sum for dilapidations at the start of the lease, which is available in certain other jurisdictions and which some tenants might actually find quite attractive from a certainty perspective to know at the start of the lease, you know, what they're going to be in for or what have you. I mean, I'm sure from a tenant perspective, they would like to see the whole area of dilapidations revisited given the strain that any of them have faced during COVID and of course we've got Brexit on the horizon. But you know, as you say, Joe, uh, I'm sure there's plenty of terminal dilapidations disputes um still going to be happening and lots of um very specialist surveyors and indeed lawyers advising on them. So for the parties who you know can afford the litigation, then I think those disputes are probably going to continue. Before we head off to consider how else we might improve the property disputes world and to end what has been a difficult 2020 for so many people. I thought I'd finish up by asking you both to say something positive that you've learned from the challenges of 2020 or or something that you're grateful for. So Joe, do you want to go first? What have you learned from 2020? That's an interesting question. Obviously crisis often accelerates technological change, doesn't it? I mean you think of wars, they are also terrible times but also accelerate change and I I definitely think uh, that's the same for us too. I'm I'm not going to pretend I've just been involved in developing a new form of vaccine but I have learnt new skills, definitely uh, become much more familiar with finding my way around um, an e-bundle and working electronically. So the positive thing for me is I'm doing my little bit for the planet by not pressing the print button quite so often, I think. That is so true, actually. I mean, it's it's been phenomenal how people have managed to work remotely on screen um, when they always insisted on printing off, you know, some of them printing off every email, you know, that they ever received on a file. And it has made me laugh how the courts seem to have gone from the 17th century to the 21st century within about two weeks, to be fair. I mean, they they were on it with the with the remote hearings, weren't they? Absolutely. It's definitely changed a lot of the way that we work. Um, I think we I think, you know, doing remote hearings, some of that is going to be retained going forward, isn't it, as well? And and definitely working electronically. So the courts have come up to speed pretty quickly. They have. I've been very impressed, actually, and um and hopefully, as you say, I think that will allow us to do more of that going forward and hopefully then that will save costs as well you know it just it's got to be a good thing Natalie what about you what have you learned from 2020 what are you grateful for I echo Joanne's thoughts about technological um, advances Um, I've become um, much more adept at working from home and much more able to rely on technology than I was possibly before. I would say that it has shown that working from home does also have its disadvantages. We were sort of previously in in a situation where you know, we were more office based. And I think that it would be nice to return to a situation where we can work both from the office and from home a certain number of days a week and keep it um, keep that mixed up. We were chatting the other day, actually, about this. And I think people have really missed bumping into people in the kitchen. One thing we've learned from 2020 is actually how much we, we do miss that interaction, don't we? I've become grateful for my commute. That's yeah. a sad thing, isn't it, really? <laughs> 
it's so true though it's so true well there has been some good news at least to to end 2020 with the development amazing people these scientists developing these vaccines at that rate so um uh, i think we hopefully do have a lot to be grateful for and a lot to look forward to for 2021 thank you both very much for joining us and uh, and having that chat through some interesting parts of the legislation we have to deal with daily and thank you to our listeners as well uh, for joining us today and for your loyal support throughout uh, 2020 in particular during the um, slightly challenging times in terms of recordings uh, it's much appreciated uh, we do hope you find them useful and we hope that you stay safe over christmas and wish you all the very best and all of us the very best uh, for a healthy and happy 2021 this is a Charles Russell Speechley's podcast.